0: W-E-S-T-H-E-I-M-E-R, number 461, Houston, Texas, 77057. Dr. Dean is the pastor of West Houston Bible Church. And now, here's Dr. Dean with the Bible lesson. Our scripture reading this morning is in Psalm 119. I began this a couple of weeks ago, reading through the 119th Psalm, which is a meditation on... The importance of knowing the Word of God. It is based on the Hebrew alphabet, so each section began with a different consecutive letter in the Hebrew alphabet. We read through the first section two weeks ago. We'll read through the second one this morning, the section called Bait, which extends from verse 9 through verse 16, beginning in Psalm 119.9. How can a young man cleanse his way by taking heed thereto according to thy word? With my whole heart I have sought you. Oh, let me not wander from your commandments. Your word I have hidden in my heart that I might not sin against you. Blessed are you, O Lord, teach me your statutes. With my lips I have declared all the judgments of your mouth. I have rejoiced in the way of your testimonies as much as in all riches. I will meditate on your precepts and contemplate your ways. I will delight myself in your statutes, I will not forget your word. One announcement I failed to give this morning, that is probably the most important one for the next two or three weeks, and that is to make sure you consult the calendar in the back of the bulletin so that you know uh, when we're going to meet during the next month and when we're not going to meet. For the next three weeks, you can just assume there will be no Thursday night class because that's just not in the schedule. I leave this Wednesday for Kiev, and I will be teaching there the next two weeks. So I appreciate your prayers. On that trip, I will in the middle weekend I will be going to Zhytomyr, which is a uh, small what they call a village of about 300,000 outside of Kiev, about uh, two, maybe 150 miles from Kiev, and I will be teaching there. Uh, for one of the graduates of Jim Myers uh, Bible School, I'll be teaching three nights there as well as speaking in a local church. Nevertheless, for our schedule, there will be no Bible class this Thursday night. There will be regular services next Sunday and then the next, then the following Tuesday on the 10th. Dr. Richard Klein, who's uh, been a pastor for 20 years, founding pastor of Alvin Bible Church and professor at the College of Biblical Studies, will be. Uh, speaking on Proverbs during those two sessions. Then on Friday night, the 13th of Friday night, Saturday night, and Sunday morning, Charlie Clough will be here. And then the following week from the 16th to the 20th, there will be no Bible class. And then I'll be back and we'll be back on schedule beginning the 22nd. So make sure you you consult that. Otherwise, you'll show up on Thursday night and think the rapture occurred. Before we get started this morning, we need to make sure that we're in fellowship. and So the Lord has given us a grace provision in 1 John one nine that in order to recover from sin, from failure, no matter how egregious it might be, all we need to do is admit or acknowledge our sin to Him and He instantly forgives us and cleanses us from all unrighteousness. We're restored to fellowship. We recover the sanctifying ministry of God the Holy Spirit, known as the filling of the Holy Spirit so that we can resume our walk by means of the Holy Spirit. So we always begin with a few moments of silent prayer to give you the opportunity to use 1 John 1.9 if necessary. Then I'll open in prayer. Let's pray. Father, we are indeed grateful as we begin this new year that you have given us salvation through the Lord Jesus Christ, that your grace has been shed abroad in our hearts and we have come to understand the magnificence of your love for us as demonstrated through the fact that you sent your Son to die on the cross for us. Father, this is the beginning of the Christian life when we have faith alone in Christ alone and then we have responsibilities and duties as we advance in the spiritual life. And now, Father, as we continue our study on the basic responsibilities of our priesthood and duties of our ambassadorship, we pray that you would uh, help us to focus on these things and understand them perhaps in a fresh way, that God the Holy Spirit would use this as he produces spiritual maturity in our lives. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen. In the last few weeks, we have been continuing our study on the basics related to the Christian life. And I have organized it this section called uh, Foundation for Living in three ways. We looked at the foundations or the basic spiritual skills over the first five weeks. Confession, filling and walking by the Holy Spirit, the faith rest drill, grace orientation, and doctrinal orientation. Then we shifted to talk about the uh, duties and responsibilities of our priesthood and the duties and responsibilities of our ambassadorship. So I thought I would put this together in a little chart. And here we have you, the believer. And you have duties, responsibilities towards God in relationship to your priesthood. And you have duties and responsibilities in your ministry to mankind. And this relates to the doctrine of ambassadorship. So we are both royal priests and royal ambassadors under priesthood we've looked at prayer because prayer is directed toward God and is pictured in the Old Testament through the burning of incense and it shows the the intercessory prayers of the saints, of the believers going up to God that is part of our priesthood last time, two weeks ago before Christmas we looked at Bible study this incorporates two aspects not only The coming to church and studying the Word in an in-depth environment where you have a trained pastor teacher who is uh, taking you into the depths of the Word of God and teaching not only the milk of the Word, but also the uh, meat of the Word, which is necessary for spiritual growth, but also that you as an individual believer priest need to be reading your Bible not because you are going, you can necessarily grow as a result of that. I mean, you pick up, as I used the analogy last time of somebody panning for gold. There are principles you will be reminded of. There are promises that you will be reminded of. You need to know the people, the places, the events of Scripture and just to be reminded of that and to learn about that so that when a pastor is teaching the Word... Uh, you're not uh, out there wondering who he's talking about when he mentions people like Mephibosheth or Maher Shalal Hashbaz or some of the other people in the Old Testament. See, that'll give you something to do today. You can look those names up in a concordance and find out who they who they were. But Bible study, of both levels, is important so that you are a knowledgeable believer. This morning, we're going to look at an aspect of our priesthood related to giving. Now, giving is interesting because it relates both to our priesthood and to our, our ambassadorship. As Scripture says, giving is part of the sacrifices we bring to God. So that relates to the priestly function. And it is often used, the giving to the local church used for for uh, the support of the local church, for missions and other ministries. And so that relates to our ambassadorship. So giving can fall under either of these two categories. Then when I get back from Ukraine, we'll talk about witnessing as a function of our royal ambassadorship. So this just orients you to where we're going. In fact, the uh, last class on witnessing will come uh, and when I, as I said when I return and that will be the last class in the series and then at the end of January we will go back to our study in Revelation. So this orients you to where we are in terms of our priesthood and our ambassadorship. Now let's look at what the Bible says about giving. Giving is one of those doctrines that at least from my background and my perspective and many of the pastors that I associate with, is something we don't like to talk about. We're so sensitive, I think, to the pastors and ministries and television evangelists that overemphasize money and put it in a wrong perspective and teach error about it and basically spend most of their time dunning the sheep or fleecing the sheep for financial support instead of teaching the word, that we err by going in the opposite direction and we hardly say anything about it. So every now and then when I get into this study, I get uh, corrected a little bit as a pastor to recognize that it's important to talk about giving, that the Bible says a tremendous amount about money and how the believer is to responsibly use his money as unto the Lord. And so we shouldn't shy away from the topic, even though at times it seems like it gets a little close to home because it starts hitting us in our pocketbook. There are several misconceptions that people have about uh, what the Bible teaches about money. And most of these are the result of not understanding the distinctions in the Scripture between the Old Testament dispensation of the Mosaic Law and the New Testament dispensation of the church. In the Old Testament, there were two types of giving. Two types of giving. There was mandatory giving and there was free will giving under the Mosaic Law. Now, if you go back to Genesis chapter 1 and begin to go through Genesis, the first time you have any mention of financial giving or the giving of financial gifts is when Abraham gives a 10% offering offering from the spoils when he, when he defeated the uh, four kings after they had invaded down through the uh, Jordan Valley and wiped out the cities of the plains. After Abraham defeated them, he brought the spoils back, gave 10% to Melchizedek. That was called a tithe. That's just tithe is just an old English word for 10%. One of the uh, misconceptions that I often hear is that unlearned people use tithe almost as a synonym for giving. Tithe is really a type of giving. It was a 10% gift. And you only have two examples of giving in the book of Genesis. You have Abraham and Jacob, and they both give a tithe or a 10% offering to the Lord. But they are not mandated. There's no place anywhere in Genesis where you find instruction from God to give 10%. So they are free will offerings to God. They are a 10% gift because that was pretty much the norm in the ancient world we have examples from the code of hammurabi and from other uh, ancient law codes that this was a standard figure for for taxation and for giving of gifts to various deities so they gave 10% to god but it's a free will offering it wasn't mandated and as far as we can tell that was the only time in the course of their lives that they gave this it was a one time free will gift uh, based on 10%. When the Mosaic Law came along, there were uh, tithes and free will offerings that were laid out in the Mosaic Law. The, there wasn't just one tithe, though. There were actually three tithes. Each tithe was a 10% offering to the Lord, and these were mandatory. They were for the purpose, actually, of supporting the government they would be equivalent for us of what we pay in, in terms of taxes we pay property taxes we pay income tax this was a 10% income tax that was designed to support uh, the government the government under the Mosaic law was a theocracy in a the theocracy God is the head of the government God rules and God was the ultimate ruler but he administered the kingdom initially through the priesthood And so the priests and the Levites were equivalent to the bureaucracy in the theocracy. So the first tithe was a 10% tithe for all Jewish citizens, which included both believers and unbelievers. And it was for the maintenance of the Levites for their uh, teaching, for the service in the temple, and their teaching of the Word of God. This is given in Numbers 18, verses 21 and 24. And, of course, that couldn't be pertinent today because we don't support a temple Priesthood, or tabernacle priesthood. We don't have a formal priesthood anymore, so that could not apply in any way. The second tithe was, a, again, a 10% tithe for all Jewish citizens, both believers and unbelievers, to support the cost of the Lord's sacrifices, the sacrifices in the temple. This is laid out in Deuteronomy chapter 14, verses 22 through 24 so you had 20% of the income went to the nation to support the levites and then to support the ritual in the tabernacle and later the temple and then every third year there was a another 10% tax so you have 20% every year and every third year it's 30% and this tax was the equivalent of their welfare program it was to provide a financial resource to give a safety net to the widows and the orphans. It was true biblical charity. It wasn't socialism. It was a 10% income tax that was paid by all the people. The money was kept in the temple in the Old Testament. That was typical in almost all the ancient religions. The temples served as the banks. This is a background for understanding a passage that is often Uh, misunderstood, misquoted, taken out of context in the scripture and that's Malachi 3.8 and 3.10 this takes place in Israel after their return from the Babylonian captivity and as they're reestablishing the priesthood reestablishing temple worship they also fail to apply much of the Mosaic law so there is a challenge to them in terms of paying their tithes Malachi 3.8 says will a man rob God? Yet you have robbed me. But you say, in what way have we robbed you? In tithes and offerings. They had failed to give their tithes to the Lord. Malachi 3.10, bring all the tithes into the storehouse. Now I can't tell you how many times I have heard that phrase mentioned in some sort of giving message in various churches. It doesn't have anything to do with the church. It doesn't say bring all your tithes into the church. Is bring all your tithes into the storehouse, and the storehouse was the temple uh, treasury, and that's where the money was kept. Bring all the tithes into the storehouse, that there may be food in my house. So you see, the purpose for the tithing well, goes back to supporting the people and supporting the, the widows and orphans, as well as supporting the priesthood, the bureaucracy of the theocracy. And the Lord says, if I will not open for you the windows of heaven and pour out for you such blessing, then there will not be uh, room enough to receive it. So God says, if you will go back to the principle of uh, applying, uh, following the mandates for tithes, then blessing will come from heaven. And that was just standard in the Mosaic law, that obedience to God would result in physical blessing. The, uh, they would have agricultural prosperity and uh, fertility productivity and the nation would be financially healthy now that all related to just paying taxes but over and above the mandatory giving in the old testament there were also free will offerings or voluntary offerings and these took various shapes you could bring a voluntary offering to the tabernacle or temple for various reasons these were associated with different types of offerings And then uh, for the greatest example of this is when the Jews were going to construct the tabernacle when they were at the foot of Mount Sinai. And uh, Aholiab and Bezalel were appointed directors of the whole uh, building program to gather all the materials together to construct the tabernacle. And the people were called upon to look at, at what they had, what their possessions were, and to bring... Whatever the Lord led them to bring to uh, give to the builders to use in the construction of the tabernacle. So the construction of the tabernacle was built on the, the free will offerings of the people. So you had two categories in the Old Testament. You had a mandatory tax that went to the support of the government and took care of the widows and the orphans in the nation. And then you had a free will offering which was grace-oriented, which was not, the amount was not set. The word tithe is never used in relation to that. And the amount was determined by the individual believer as unto the Lord. Now, when you move from the Old Testament into the New Testament, there's a change that takes place dispensationally. No longer is there a nation that is operative for God's people. The church is not restricted to one ethnic group. It's not related to to one nation. It is spread throughout all the nations. There are Jews and Gentiles alike who make up the body of Christ. So the body of Christ is international in its scope and it's not related to one particular government. So the mandatory taxation to support a government in light of a theocracy no longer exists. However, the principle of taxation to support whatever government you're under still exists for example Jesus said render unto Caesar that which is Caesar he recognizes that it is a legitimate function of a national entity to raise taxes in order to support the government now how that's done is a different subject but in principle uh, the principle of taxation is legitimate and recognized uh, by the Lord Jesus Christ that's mandatory but in terms of the Old Testament tithe that no longer exists. So we have a mandatory giving, as it were, which is related to taxation. Then we have free will offerings that's the support of the local church and various missionary ministries. And so churches are dependent today upon the gifts of people in the congregation, on their financial support, their response to the grace of God in their own lives and to support local ministries and these ministries may be missions these ministries may have to do with uh, what what is usually classified as domestic uh, missions uh, home missions where you support various ministries that are involved in evangelism uh, seminaries, Christian camping things of that nature that, that are operational in this country as well as uh, foreign missions where you're supporting people uh, like Moses Anwabiko or Jim Myers or uh, Ralph LaRosa or any number of these missionaries who go to another culture and spend their lives teaching the word and evangelizing in those foreign cultures. So you have all of these different functions are completely dependent upon the grace giving of believers. And as God oversees the church, part of our responsibility as priests is to recognize that what God gives us in terms of the amount of time that we have in life, the uh, whatever spiritual gifts and resources that we have in terms of our natural talents plus our spiritual gifts as well as our financial resources are given to us by the Lord so that a portion of that time or talent or treasure is used to serve the Lord either in support of a ministry or a mission or something of that nature. And that's where giving relates to both our priesthood as well as to our ambassadorship. So in the New Testament dispensation, the emphasis is on free will giving. It's between the believer and the Lord Jesus Christ as to how much he gives to the Lord's work, whether it's a local church or some other mission. Now, in the New Testament, we have an example of giving and Paul's instruction related to giving in two epistles that are both directed to the same congregation, and that is a congregation in Corinth. And so, to get the background, I want to have you turn to 1 Corinthians chapter 16, and we'll go over a few background items just to make sure that you understand the context. 1 Corinthians chapter 16 verses 1 through 4 gives us Paul's initial instruction. Actually, it's not even his initial instruction. He had given some instruction earlier to them, but this is the first written instruction that we're aware of related to a specific offering. And then there is further information about this given in 2 Corinthians chapter 8 and 9, and we'll go there uh, eventually this morning. Because that is where you have the greatest teaching, the greatest amount of teaching related to giving in the New Testament. When we come to Corinthians, we have to recognize where it is. There's some ge- geographical designations here, so I put this up on the overhead so that you can orient yourself. Greece, this is the area of Greece. This is the Greece peninsula. The area in green up here in the in the north is Macedonia, or as the Greeks pronounce it, Macedonia. This is where Paul first went on his second missionary journey. That's the green line of travel, if you can see it. Don't worry if you can't. That's not necessary. He landed here at Neapolis, and first he went to Philippi, uh, where he uh, founded a church there at Philippi. That's where he uh, witnessed uh, to Lydia, who was a uh, merchant, Uh, and she was down by the river with other proselytes praying and he led them to the Lord and from that core group established a church in Philippi then he went from there to Thessalonica and from there he went to Berea now these are all the Macedonians and there's reference to the Macedonian believers in uh, both of these passages then he headed south to the southern part of Greece which is known as Achaia there's a reference to Achaia in these passages also, so that gives you an understanding of where Achaia was located. Over here on this peninsula, we have the city of Athens. Then there's an isthmus right here that you can't see because the word Corinth is, uh, covers it over. But there's a narrow isthmus that goes down to the uh, Peloponnese, which is this southern peninsula. Uh, and just as you cross the isthmus, you have the city of Corinth. Paul at the time that he wrote 1 Corinthians is across the Aegean Sea over here at the city of Ephesus. So that gives you a geographical orientation to the places that we are discussing. Now verse 1. Paul says, now concerning the collection for the saints. The now concerning here in the Greek is the phrase peride which indicates a new subject. Paul after founding the church in Corinth, which is covered in Acts chapter 19, at the end of his second missionary journey, went on to Ephesus. And while he was in Ephesus, he founded a school, stayed in Ephesus for a couple of years, was training pastors and evangelists who were taking the gospel throughout the Roman uh, province of Asia, which on the map is this area in blue, What is we call the western part of Turkey. We usually think of Asia as being much further east. But this was the Roman province of Asia. And Paul sent out evangelists and they established churches in uh, places like Colossae and Laodicea, Philadelphia, uh, Thyatira, Sardis. All of those various churches were established during this time period while Paul was in Ephesus. While he was at Ephesus, he received a letter from the Corinthian church with a number of questions. There were also some problems that he learned about, so he wrote the epistle of 1 Corinthians in order to answer these questions and straighten out some of the problems. So each time he addresses a new question, he does it with this Greek phrase, day. So the last question he is answering in the letter had to do with finances and the Uh, Corinthian church had been taking up a collection it's it's apparent that they know what he's talking about when he says now concerning the collection it's not an indefinite collection he's not talking about collection of money in principle he's talking about a specific collection that they're already familiar with that he had been working for uh, uh, over a year in churches in Galatia as well as in, in Rome well, I don't have that slide up here. Romans fifteen six. He mentions. He mentions the fact that he had uh, encouraged them to, as well, to participate in this collection to take money back to the church of Jerusalem. Jerusalem was a impoverished church. The believers there were going through various problems. There had been famines in the past, and so the church was, could not support itself. So Paul was going around to the different churches that he had established in Galatia, uh, church in Rome, churches in uh, Macedonia, churches in Achaia, and he was directing them and instructing them to periodically take up a collection to send back to Jerusalem. And this had been going on for a year, and so there is a question from the Corinthian church as to what to do. So he's answering the question. He says, Now concerning the collection for the saints, as I have given orders to the churches of Galatia, so you must do also. Now there's a couple of things we ought to observe here. First of all, he has given them instruction about how to take up money, how to collect money from the congregation. So there's nothing wrong with taking up a collection. Now, different churches do it different ways. Some folks pass a plate. Some folks have an uh, offering box on the side of the, uh, in the back of the church or on the side of the church, which is where people put in their offerings. Um, the, the scripture doesn't dictate one way or another, just that there is a regular uh, collection of, uh, of money for the support of the local church as well as missions. over a year Paul had been giving these instructions to them and the word that he uses is an interesting word it's the Greek word diatasso, which means to command to appoint to ordain or to set in order it has the idea of giving specific instructions and mandates to a local church so Paul is not afraid to talk about money and he uses a very strong word When he does so, he says, I gave you specific orders, specific instructions as to how to handle uh, this financial situation. And then we come to verse 2 where we learn what those instructions were. On the first day of the week, let each one of you lay something aside. Now, in that culture, it was typical that a worker would get his weekly pay at the end of the week. So. the, The situation was such that after you got paid on Friday, then on Sunday when the church gathered, you would put aside a certain amount of money that would be stored up. And to do this over a lengthy period of time, it's been going on, we know, for over a year. So a couple of observations are in store. First of all, Paul recognized the principle of having planned giving it's something that you should think about it's between you and the Lord but it should be planned and it should be regular and it should be uh, consistent another thing that we note here is that Paul recognizes that the legitimacy of taking up a collection for specific purposes for specific uh, situations or specific uh, problems for example we've got some things that are coming up here we have a pastor's conference in March and there are various people who have asked questions if there is a way to uh, financially contribute to help support that we're hoping that we can provide a number of things for the pastors while they're here so that this does not become a a financial burden for them many times uh, these men are unable to come to conferences because they're pastoring small churches and they just don't have the financial resources to travel across the country or stay in a hotel room or to pay for the meal so we're trying to uh, provide a scholarship for them uh, in terms of hotel rooms and to provide at least breakfast if it's not included with the room to provide breakfast and a noon meal for the pastors and so we're also uh, we've got about half the money set aside already that we're going to need for that but we need more so there's, a, there's a, a precedent in scripture for collecting money for a specific task further down the road as a church we're going to have to buy property and so we need to start setting aside money now for that future time when we want to buy property when the time comes we don't want to say okay we need to raise Four or $500,000 in the next couple of weeks. Let's do it now. now. We need to plan on it ahead and take a certain amount of money each week that is set aside for the purpose of that eventual purchase of property. And that's what we do every month at the end of the month after we balance the books, whatever comes in, uh, for now we're following this procedure, that whatever comes in above and beyond our monthly expenses, we're setting aside 50% of that amount. Uh, for the future purpose of uh, property and for now we're using some of that just to finish uh, dealing with uh, things that have to be done with this new property but that's how we're approaching that. There's also things that people can do individually in terms of their own financial planning, estate planning, things of that nature in terms of uh, giving for local church or for for, uh, various missions. So Paul is not at all uh, reticent about telling people how they should go about giving and how uh, this should be prioritized in their lives. On the first day of the week, let each one of you lay something aside. Notice he didn't say lay uh, 10% aside. He said lay something. It's indefinite. It's between you and the Lord as to how much you give. Storing up as he may prosper. That's the guideline. It is proportional giving in proportion to how the Lord has prospered you. It is a response to God's grace in your life, an expression of gratitude. And then he concludes that verse by saying that there, may, that there be no collections when I come. Paul recognized the wisdom of this, that if they take up a collection every week over a period of a year, that the amount that he's going to have to take back to Jerusalem is going to be much greater than if he took up a collection uh, when he showed up. There would not be very much at that time, so he recognizes the principle of long-term planning in giving to a local church. Then we go to—that's the background for understanding First Corinthians chapter, our Second Corinthians chapter eight. So turn with me now to Second Corinthians chapter eight. Here Paul is pointing out the example of the Macedonians in giving. And this is under the inspiration of God the Holy Spirit to point out the basic principles of grace giving. In 2 Corinthians 8.1, Paul says, Moreover, brethren, we make known to you the grace of God bestowed on the churches in Macedonia. Now, what had taken place between the previous epistle and this epistle is that apparently the Corinthians had not, the gift had not been picked up yet, and they had fallen off, in their contributions to this need in Jerusalem. And so Paul is having to encourage them again to continue with what they had originally started, to stay with the original plan. And he is going to encourage them by way of the example of the churches in Macedonia. So the motiva- uh, as we look at this, we recognize that the motivation is going to be their understanding of the grace of God and their... Uh, gratitude for God's grace. So verse 1 reads, Moreover, brethren, we make known to you the grace of God bestowed on the churches of Macedonia that in a great trial of affliction, the abundance of their joy and their deep poverty abounded in the riches of their liberality. Now this gives us an idea of what was going on in the ancient world. None of these churches were wealthy, at least Uh, not by our standards at all. They were made up of people who were uh, from the lower echelons of society, although there were some aristocrats, there were some that were fairly well-to-do. The vast majority of the the believers were not people who were, were wealthy, yet they were willing to give and to make sacrifices. Now, the concept of sacrifice, as we study this, doesn't necessarily entail the killing of an animal. A sacrifice, and if you look at Webster's, gives an excellent definition in the English, is an act of offering to a deity something valuable. The act of giving up something or setting aside something of value, such as time, money, or energy, in order to do something else. And that's what the sacrifice is. It is recognizing that, sure, I could take this money and I could use it for uh, going out to eat. I could use it to... Uh, for whatever personal pleasure I might want to use it for, but I recognize that this is needed uh, in other places. It's more important for it to be used by the Lord. There are people who have need, there are ministries that have need, and so a decision is made to give a certain portion to the support of local churches, support of missions. What we see in this example with the Corinthians is that they're not giving out of the excess that they have. They don't look at their paycheck, and then after they pay all the bills, decide, okay, I want to give this much. They look at how much the Lord has provided for them and what the need is, and they make a decision to give a certain amount. And then having made that decision, they are going to adjust their other expenses in order to uh, make that possible. You often see something like this when you go to other cultures, whether it's believers or unbelievers. And I've been in places uh, when I've been on travels in Kiev and in Russia where people will open up their home to you, invite you over for dinner, and they will just really spread out an enormous feast. And what you don't realize is they have taken the entire week's budget for food and spend it on that one meal. So they have literally gone without food for several days in order to have the resources to put together this particular meal. And that's the idea that we have here in Macedonia, is that in great trial of affliction, it wasn't easy for them to give as generously as they gave. They had to set aside a number of personal comforts in order to do that. But they were motivated by their joy their mental attitude their inner happiness was their their happiness in life was not dependent on what they had or what they did it was dependent upon their service to the Lord so their mental attitude is grounded in an orientation to grace because they're oriented to grace they have happiness and stability that's not based on what they have or the amount of money in their bank account and Paul goes on to say, out of the affliction of the abundance of their joy, their tremendous mental attitude, plus their deep poverty. This is their circumstances. And see, there are many people who will use their lack of uh, financial ability as an excuse for not giving, not supporting uh, local ministries. And yet, here is a classic example from the New Testament period of a congregation that didn't have anything and yet... Paul characterizes their gift as the riches of their liberality, the riches of their generosity. They understood grace, and this is the foundation, as we'll see, for their giving. So in verse verses 1 through 3, we see that uh, they give not from their excess, but they give from uh, their poverty in verse 5 we see the basis and the motivation for giving now, motivation for giving is an orientation to God's grace Paul says therefore I thought it necessary to exhort the brethren to go to you ahead of time and prepare your generous gift beforehand which you had previously promised that it may be ready as a matter of generosity and not as a grudging obligation. The point is that it's motivated by grace. It's motivated by gratitude, and as they come to understand uh, the Word of God, they are, and all that God has done for them, then they give in uh, very generously. Back in verse 3, let me back up one, Paul said that he bore witness that they gave not only according to the, their ability, but beyond their ability. They were freely willing. There's no oppression. There's no guilt manipulation. There's no. Uh, the, Paul isn't trying to uh, use any gimmicks to get money out of them. It is based on their relationship with the Lord. Now, this phrase, according to their ability, uh, when he says, I bear witness that according to their ability and beyond their ability, that doesn't mean that when they gave beyond their ability that they went into debt to do it. What it means is that they gave beyond what you would expect them to give. Because of what they had, what their resources were, you might expect them to only give a certain amount, but they were willing to give up in other areas so that they could give even more. You don't want to get into debt. You need to be very careful about this in giving. And frequently I make the point when I teach on giving is that too often believers today get caught in traps Related to indebtedness, credit card debt is just out of control. We carry debt on credit card, we carry debt on our cars, our homes, all these things. And then we hear of certain financial needs and we'd really like to help, but we don't have the financial resources because we're strung out on debt. So you should manage your finances in such a way that you are able to pay off all of your credit card debt every month so that you can go from month to month. And if needs come up that the Lord brings to your attention, then you are, have not hamstrung yourself by getting into debt. I taught that several years ago. Recently, I was talking to someone and they said, you know, it's taken me three years, but I'm out of debt on my credit card as of this month. I said, really? What encouraged you to do that? I said, you did. Amazing. Somebody listens to me every now and then. They said, I really really hit me when I realized how uh, it hindered me from being able to properly give to the local church and other ministries because I was having to pay off this enormous credit card debt so I made it a point to to uh, pay it all off and to get out of debt and so this is something that we should all pay attention to the motivation for giving is our orientation to God's grace the uh, the Macedonians recognized that giving was partnership with other believers in serving the Lord. And second uh, Corinthians chapter 8 in verse 4 the uh, Paul says, "I bear witness that according to their ability and beyond their ability they were freely willing, imploring us with much urgency that we would receive the gift, And the fellowship, and that word is koinonia for partnership, and the partnership of the service or ministry to the saints. So giving is a way in which we become partners with one another in achieving certain goals. When we look at someone who comes to the Lord uh, on the mission field, we are partners in that by virtue of our financial support. Sometimes you see somebody go on the mission field and they're there in a particular area for 10, 15, 20 years and one person gets saved. And it may cost $50,000, $100,000, $200,000 to support that missionary for all that time, but that one soul is worth it. And over time, we never know what the fruit of that ministry might be. So we need to become excited about the opportunity of being participants in the ministry, whether it's with the local church or with various missions. But the foundation for giving is then given in verse 5. And not only as we had hoped, but they first gave themselves to the Lord and then to us by the will of God. So the foundation and the priority in their giving was first of all their relationship to the Lord... And secondly, the giving. See, giving is not a means to spiritual growth. It's not a means to spirituality. It's the result of our spiritual growth. As we learn more about the grace of God, we learn more about what He has done, we learn more about how He is working through various ministries around the world, then we are motivated by our relationship with the Lord to get involved financially with these ministries, we don't get involved with those ministries thinking that somehow we're going to gain favor with God and impress Him with our uh, generosity. Let's skip down to verse 9. Verse 9, we see again that the foundation is understanding God's gift of salvation. Paul says to the Corinthians, For you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though He was rich... Yet for your sakes he became poor, that you through his poverty might become rich. So the standard for giving is what Jesus Christ did on the cross. uh, John 3.16, For God so loved the world that he gave his only Son. That's the standard for giving. It is a standard that goes beyond measure. It is generous. It's based on love. So giving is directly proportional to our personal love for God the Father and is indeed in this passage it's a test of our love for God the importance uh, verse 11 stresses the importance of consistency in giving 2 Corinthians 8.11 says but now you also must complete the doing of it see they had made this commitment initially that they were going to take up a collection weekly for the saints in Jerusalem but somewhere along the line they stopped and they they uh, quit taking up the collection so now Paul is challenging them to complete what they had started now you also must complete the doing of it that as there was a readiness to desire it you were very enthusiastic at the beginning but you've lost that enthusiasm so there also may be a completion out of what you had finish the task this is one of the important things in any ministry there are two types of givers there are those who give every week or twice a month or whatever uh, your pattern is. There are those that give every month, and that is needed because ministries run on monthly bills just like everybody's household does. And every month you have certain minist- certain bills that come in that are consistent. You need to have that regular, consistent uh, income that you can count on so that you can pay those bills so that you can budget for the future and plan for the future. But then there are also one time needs, you, you, needs for computers, needs for special projects, whatever it may be. And there are folks that like to give uh, large amounts of money to one time type of needs or gifts. You need both. And we have been blessed with people who provide for this church in both ways. But both are necessary. And if you are uh, someone who gives, you need to recognize that it needs to be consistent. So that people uh, who are in charge of planning for the church have some concept of what is going to be coming in so that we can make plans for the future. So consistency is important. Volition is also important. Verse 12 and 13 emphasize this. That sometimes there's a desire, but but God just hasn't uh, prospered you so that you can give. I, I think there's a lot of folks who, who would give a lot more if they had it. And sometimes we think that way. Well, if I just won the lottery. Well, are you consistent with what you already have and what you're already giving? Second Corinthians eight, twelve, and 13, Paul says, For if there is first a willing mind, it is accepted according to what one has and not according to what he does not have. God honors a desire even if he does not give you very much in terms of resources in order to give. Verse 13, for I do not mean that others should be eased and you burdened. So Paul goes on to talk to them. Let's close by looking at the last point, which is that grace means generosity. And this is laid out in the next chapter in 2 Corinthians 9, verses 6 through 10. The principle of sowing and reaping is laid out in in verses 6 and 7. Now, too many people have taken this out of context, and they want to give in order to get. This is known as the health and wealth gospel, that if you give God 10%, he'll return a hundredfold to you. And I've talked to people over the years who've been suckered by these religious frauds, who uh, tell them that if you give, God will return it to you tenfold or a hundredfold. And so they've taken all their money out of their bank account, given it to a ministry, thinking that God will uh, sometime down the road return it, that investment to them uh, tenfold or a hundredfold. That's not what this is talking about. It is talking about the fact that a person who sows sparingly, and your giving may not be just financial, it may be in terms of your life, your energy, your time, it can imply to many different areas that if you sow sparingly, then the return is going to be sparing. But if you sow bountifully, if you give of yourself, give of your time, give of your talent, give of your treasure, then you'll reap bountifully. It may not be in the same kind. You may give generously financially and not see any financial return, but it will be returned to you in other ways. So the principle is laid out in verse 7. So let each one give as he purposes in his heart. Not 10%, not 15%. Whatever uh, you determine between you and the Lord. Let each one give as he purposes in his heart. Not grudgingly or out of necessity. There shouldn't ever be guilt manipulation when it comes to taking up a collection in church. And I've seen... I can't... I don't have near enough time to tell you some of the things that I have seen in this regard over the years. It's just incredible the manipulation that takes place in churches to get money out of people's pockets. We need to learn to relax and trust God, the Holy Spirit, to move people and to provide the resources. God's work done God's way is never going to suffer for God's resources. We need to trust Him and He will provide. The attitude is one of joy. God doesn't want people giving and then saying, "Well, I just wish I didn't have to give that money. I'd rather use it some other way. God would rather use it some other way. God wants your orientation to be towards His grace and to be giving joyfully because you recognize everything that God has done for you. Verse 8 states, And God is able to make all grace abound to you. God is going to take care of you God is going to provide for each one of us, and as we give and as we're involved in financial giving, then the Lord is going to take care of us because He is the one who sustains us in every area of life. God is able to make all grace abound toward you that you, always having all sufficiency in all things, may have an abundance for every good work. God is always going to supply uh, everything that we need this is concluded in verse 10 now may he who supplies seed to the sower and bread for food supply and multiply the seed you have sown and increase the fruits of your righteousness so Paul is praising the Corinthians because of their desire to give but they have fallen short and they haven't come through with it and now he's challenging them to to move forward what we've learned from this is the foundation for giving is our understanding of the cross Giving is a result of our gratitude towards God's grace. There's not a set amount in the church age. It is proportional as God has prospered each one of you. And yet it is the gifts of the congregation, gifts of individual believers that has sent missionaries throughout all the world. You cannot imagine how many missionaries have gone out from Britain in the 19th century And the United States in the late 19th century and 20th century, they've taken the gospel all over the world. And most of the gifts that support most of those ministries, the the camps, the seminaries, the churches, are not the big gifts of $1,000 offerings or $5,000 offerings, gifts from wealthy individuals. Those are great and those are needed. But the vast majority have been the gifts of $10 here, $50 there, $30 here, $80 there. Faithful saints consistently giving to support local church ministries out of their gratitude for what God has done for them. Let's bow our heads in closing prayer. Father, we do thank you for your grace that you gave us everything at the cross. You sent your son to die for us. And as we think about all that you have provided for us, not just in our salvation, but for our spiritual life, and all the tremendous infinite blessings that you've given us we realize how little we give back Father we pray that you challenge us in this area of giving to be honest before you and in our own lives that, that we might recognize and look at it in terms of, bar- of a barometer of our own spiritual growth but Father there may be someone here this morning who's unsure of their salvation or uncertain of their eternal life and they need to respond to your gift to them which is eternal life Jesus Christ came to die on the cross for your sins. He paid the price for those sins, paid the penalty in full, so that all that is left for you is to receive the gift, to accept the free gift of salvation through Jesus Christ by believing on him, simply trusting in him for your eternal life. This is your opportunity to make your salvation certain. Right now, right where you sit, if you believe Jesus Christ died on the cross for your sins then God knows what you are trusting and at the instant you put your faith alone in Christ alone, you have eternal salvation and it can never be taken away from you. It is a permanent gift that is always yours. Now, Father, we pray that you challenge us with the things that we have studied this morning. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen.